My name is Bob. I'm one of the pastors around here and feel very, very privileged to be able to share with you on this Father's Day. And I do, just like others have when they've got up here, I want to say happy Father's Day to you guys out there that are slugging it out and raising kids and doing a great job. And I've just got to say that it's a big deal. It matters what we do as dads. We play a powerful role in the lives of our kids, and I would even say a shaping role in their life. When I grew up, I was one of those kids that just had to please their dad. It just mattered to me. I wanted to have my dad's approval. I wanted him to be proud of me. And I just even think about those times that kind of through teenage years where even as much as you tried to make it seem like you didn't really care what your parents thought, you actually really did, and it still mattered. I, I was one of those kids, uh, but it mattered to me. And so I tried to excel at things like sports because I felt like that would make dad proud and academics and, and work ethic. My dad was an incredibly hard worker, and I wanted him to think that I was a hard worker, and so I did everything I could to try to make him proud because the thought of being Having him be disappointed in me was, it just felt like it was a weight that was unbearable. I just didn't want to have to deal with that. If we kind of fast forward my life to when I graduated from college, and when I went to college, I was very determined to do well because my dad had never had the opportunity to go to college, and he and my mom made incredible sacrifices for me to be able to go to college, and so I wanted to do really well, and, and I excelled when I was in college, and I think that when I watched dad be proud of me and think about the life that that was going to create for me, uh, it was great inside. But then I came to this fork in the road when I came to graduation time at college, and I knew that the Lord was tapping me on the shoulder and asking me to go into ministry. And not only just any ministry, but a, a ministry to college students that for me to be able to survive, and that was a ministry where you had to raise support, where you had to ask people to be a part of your ministry team to be able to do the ministry that you did. Well, for my dad, he just really didn't grow up around the church, and so this whole thought of doing that was just like completely foreign to him, and I, I totally understood why it, it seemed unfor or unusual to him in the least. The only thing that he could associate it with was televangelist. He thought his son was going to be a televangelist. And I remember what it was like being on the phone with him one day, uh, and I was actually trying to explain to him how this was going to work financially. And his response back to me is he said, so are you telling me that you're going to try to be the next Jim Baker or Jimmy Swaggart? And I mean, it, was, it was kind of when all that stuff was swirling around, and I just remember just, just dying inside because that was the picture that my dad had of me. And it was just like this like unbearable weight, just thinking my dad is not proud of what I'm doing. He doesn't, but it was mostly because he just didn't understand. Well, let me just fast forward several years later, and I've kind of been carrying this weight uh, all through my 20s. I'm in my late 20s. It's on a Father's Day, and I have the opportunity to take my dad out to lunch. And I don't know how we got on this topic, but I started talking about my college classmates. And I graduated back in the early part of the 90s, and some of my classmates 
Uh, when they graduated, uh, it was often pretty normal that you'd sign with a company and they'd give you some stock options as kind of a bonus, uh, a signing bonus to, to go with their company. Well, if you kind of remember the tech boom back in the 90s and what the stock market did then, some of my friends that went to work for some of these tech companies became incredibly wealthy in their 20s. And they were just had all this money and they were trying to figure out how to buy land and boats and cars and and I was recounting this to my dad because I was just like so blown away by some of my friends. And as I'm telling this, I'm looking across the table at my dad and I'm starting to think, I'm probably killing him inside because everything in him is just saying, why didn't you do that? Why didn't you do the same things that those guys did? And I remember I just kind of dropped my head because I just kind of felt the shame. And I just said, I know dad, my life is never going to be like that. My dad reached across the table and he grabbed a hold of my arms and he looked in my eyes. My dad's not a touchy-feely guy in the least, but he looked at me and he said, son, I am so proud of you. I'm so proud of the decisions that you've made and I'm proud of what you've done with your life. You can tell that I still lose it today, but I completely lost it. Hearing my dad say to me, I am so proud of you for what you've done with your life. And it just struck me, the words of a father make all the difference in the world when we internalize those things, when we hear the voice of the father that says, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of what you're doing with your life. But as important as our earthly father's voice might be, infinitely more important in our life is what does our heavenly father say to us? Think about that today. If your heavenly father were to reach across the table and grab a hold of your arms and look in your eyes, what would he say to you? What do you think would be the message on his heart for you? Because quite honestly, friends, I don't know if there's a more important question that you can ask as it relates to your life of faith than what do you think God thinks about when he thinks about you? What would he say to you? Because however we answer that question is gonna determine how we approach him, how we think he thinks about us. And we know as we read the New Testament of the Bible that God wants us to understand that he's our father, that he loves us, that he's proud of us. Because that's the primary metaphor, this idea that God is our father. And here's this scripture that has grabbed a hold of me from the very beginning of the life and ministry of Jesus. And I know for probably most of my ministry life, I've just passed this over, but it's been grabbing a hold of me recently. And it's the picture that we see of Jesus at his baptism. Now, I just want to set the context a little bit. At this point, Jesus has not created a convert. He has not made a disciple. He has not preached a sermon. He has not performed a miracle. Of all the things that he's going to do in his life and ministry, he's done none of those things. But this is what we see in Matthew chapter 3. It says, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, here's the Father's voice, and he said, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Isn't that interesting to think about? That the God of the universe, the second member of the Trinity, he found it important enough to be able to affirm his son. And I can't prove this, but I just wonder, as Jesus walked this life, 
as he walked the next three years of his life and the ups and downs of ministry. I wonder if it was that voice in the back of his mind as he would go to the father and talk with him, if it was that voice of the father saying to him, you are my son. I love you. I am so pleased with you. That actually got him through the difficulties of his time of ministry. That tape that was playing in his mind. I think for us, we've got to ask the question, what is the tape that is playing in our mind? What is it that we think the voice of the Father would want to say to us? And what I want to talk about today is I think what God would want us to know that we are his children. We are sons to him. We're going to look at a very familiar story. Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. I know that Chris Townley would be so proud of me right now that I'm preaching on this. I actually texted him this week and told him I was. He was very, very glad. But this story, uh, the more that I unpack this in my own life and reflect on it, I just think it's like this multifaceted jewel that if you just turn it a little bit different way and look at it from a different angle, you just see another place of beauty in it that you didn't see before. And here's how this story begins, this parable begins. It starts out with Jesus. He's in this place where he's getting a lot of heat from the religious rulers around there. And it's because of not just his message, but it's who, is he, who he's hanging out with. Who are the people that he's choosing to be with? Because make no mistake, Jesus was incredibly popular at this time. Lots of crowds. But you know what he did? He never leveraged his popularity to try to get a seat at the cool kid table. He was willing to go to the other end of the spectrum. And he sat with the people that were marginalized in society. And this is how Luke 15 begins to try to set this in our mind. Starting in verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners, I love how that's like in I, quotes, you know, like they get to lift up your nose and say sinners when you say it. Tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered. Can you just kind of picture them in the back of the room muttering about Jesus? This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. He's willing to invite them into the most intimate space of life. When Jesus hears this and responds to it, he tells three parables, and he talks about three lost things, lost sheep, lost coin, and a lost son. Luke 15, starting in verse 11, the story of the lost son. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons, the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father says yes. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, 
the father said to him, and was filled, the father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I want to make probably the most simple observation that you can make about this parable. So when we look at this, you just see how Jesus sets it. The Father is God. We as people are the sons. But you've got to understand, sonship in the Bible means something way more than it does in our culture. Because when we think about being a son, it's more just a, a relationship in the context of a family. But in this culture, sonship meant status. It was almost like an office that someone held. Sons were held up in a higher status than other kids. And the oldest son was held up to an even higher status. You see, we don't, we don't get that so much in our culture because we do everything we can to try to keep everything equal with our kids, right? It was funny, I was, a friend of mine was telling me recently about when she was growing up, her dad, when he would come to give her a hug, he would, he would hug her and he would lean down and he would whisper in her ear, you're my favorite. And she said, my whole life, I just thought I was the favorite. And she said, I found out later that he said that to my sister as well. So I thought this would be fun actually to do with my own kids. So a couple weeks ago, just for fun, uh, hugging one of my kids and I leaned down and I just said, you're my favorite. You know what they did? They kind of like recoiled like, what? Like, you can't say that. But the, the reason is that we say you can't say that is because everything is about being equal. But in this culture, it wasn't that way. Sons were held in higher esteem. They were held in this position of honor because they carried the family name. And it wasn't just carrying the family name in the sense that we have a last name like Schwann because that tells us who we are in relation to every other person. To carry the name in that culture meant that you carried the reputation you carried the values, you carried the beliefs of your family. But not only did you carry the name of the family, you carried on the family business. Because they were tied together so much in, in how they, the finances worked for their family. They all had to work together in order to provide for themselves. So you carried the family name and you carried the family business if you were a son. So the Bible calls us sons. It's that picture that God is trying to say, you have status with me. And I know sometimes, I, I know women, you can think about, that just seems very sexist that he's using this idea of sons. But you know, I'm not always crazy about being called the bride of Christ either. So let's just say that we're even there. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, it's not about gender. It's about status. He wants us to understand that we have status in his eyes. And this is how Paul explained this to the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter three. Starting verse 26, he says, you are all sons of God. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. It's putting our personal faith and trust in the completed work of Jesus Christ that brings us into this place of sonship before God. Verse 27, for you are all for all of you were baptized 
into Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. You see what he's saying there? There's no categories. There's no pecking order. There's no haves and have-nots inside the kingdom of God. It's this idea, no categories. Everyone has status. Everyone has a place at the table. In verse 29, he closes by saying this, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And Romans 8 talks about how we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We have the status, the rights, the privileges, and the responsibilities of being a son. We've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness that Christ carried like a robe is wrapped around us. We carry the name of the Father. We carry the name of the King with us. And we carry the family business with us. That family business of God bringing his kingdom to this earth. As his kingdom breaks in, as we make disciples, as we display and declare the good news of this kingdom, and that it's available to everyone. Everyone can have God as a father. Sonship gives us those rights to carry the father's name and to carry on the father's business. So what does it mean for us to be sons? What does that actually provide for us? One thing that that should grab a hold in our hearts and minds is that it makes us unshakably secure because it's God himself that declares our status. We didn't work for it. We didn't earn it in any way. It's only through leaning on Christ's righteousness, through faith in him, that we have this status. Catch that again. We've earned nothing before God. We've earned absolutely nothing before God. And you see, this is what the younger son didn't understand. See, he thought, just like so many other people, I've blown it. I've blown it. I've gone too far. I've brought financial ruin potentially to my family. I've brought reputation ruin to my family. All is lost. There's no way for me to go back unless I earn it. It's kind of the American way. I've just got to earn it. And here's how we know that he was wrong. In verse 17, we hear him say this twice. When he, meaning the son, came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Now up to this point, his theology is impeccable because that's absolutely true. He has sinned against heaven and he has sinned against his father. But here's where his theology goes completely wrong. In verse 19, he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. See, his, his automatic assumption is my status is gone. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And so here's his solution. Here's his strategy moving forward. He says, make me like one of your hired men. Hire me, Father. I'll earn it. I'll earn it all back. I'll pay you back every penny. Just hire me and I'll earn it. I realize my pile of bad is like this. My pile of good is like this. Just give me some time and I'll make my pile of good bigger than that ever was. 
Just give me the opportunity to earn it. He thinks he can earn status with his father. And then he goes back to the father with this plan. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But here's the father's response. He says, your status, son, that's mine and mine alone to give to you. And son, I give it to you freely. And here I was, here's how his father unpacks that idea of status with him. What does he say? He says, go grab a robe. You know, it wasn't just to, to cover him up. A robe was a sign of royalty. This isn't just give him some clothes. This is put him in a place of honor. And he says, put a ring on his finger. Likely the, they would have been talking about a signet ring, which is in those days what they would use to sign a contract with the, that would have the family seal on there. And what is he saying by saying, give you a ring? He's saying, you are in the family. You are part of my family. Your status is restored. Your status is, my, is mine to give, and I give it to you freely. And that's what we've got to understand is that sonship, this idea of being the sons and the daughters of God, can't be earned. It only comes through faith in Christ. And if we get to that place, friends, where we think that we can earn something before God, I've just got to tell you very plainly, you've missed the heart of the Father. We don't understand how his kingdom works. Those things can't be earned. They're only declared by the Father. And that makes it unshakably secure for us. But not only are we secure, you know what sonship provides for us? It gives us intimate access to the Father himself, the Father King. Think about this. Who could wake up a king in the middle of the night and ask him for a glass of water? Could a servant do that? Absolutely not. It would be completely inappropriate for a servant to go up and wake up the king and say, could you get me a glass of water? Totally out of bounds. What about the queen? Yeah, maybe. Maybe if they got a good marriage. But he might just likely say, you know, you can get your own glass of water. But what if a son comes? What if a daughter comes? Comes up to the bed, starts shaking the father, shaking the king in the middle of the night and says, Dad, I need a glass of water. He would gladly jump up and get a glass of water for a son. God is our king, but he is our father king. He wants us. He invites us to come to him, to ask him for things, to be a part of an intimate relationship with him. And make no mistake, he is a king. He is an absolute king that reigns in ultimate authority in this world. But he's a father king that invites us to be close to him as well. A third thing that a son knows is they understand deeply the father's grace and forgiveness. And this is what I want us to understand about God's grace and forgiveness. God's grace and forgiveness always takes the initiative. Let's jump back to Luke 15. Set the scene again. We've got the father that is sitting on the porch. His son's been gone for a long time, but the father's on the porch and he's looking at the horizon. He's waiting, he's watching, he's probably hoping, maybe even expecting that someday he's gonna see that familiar silhouette on the skyline. And then one day he does, he sees him he sees him coming. 
This is what I think we need to understand is when the father sees the son coming, he has no idea what's gone on in the heart of his son. I mean, for all he knows, the son is coming back for more money. But how does the father respond to that? The father takes the initiative. Verse 20, it says, so he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him. The literal words there says, falls on his neck. I mean, if you just read that and you didn't read what was coming next, you'd think you could be grabbing him by the throat. You dirty son, look what you've done. But it says, no, he just drapes himself, falls on his neck, and then does what? He kisses him. He has no idea. The son hasn't even gotten the speech out yet that he's practiced probably every step on the way home. He doesn't even get it out. But you see that forgiveness, that grace that the father offers? The father makes the first move. God's grace and forgiveness always makes the first move. Reflect a little bit on your own life. Is that how you express grace and forgiveness? Do you forgive the way the Father gives? Do you take the initiative? Do you move toward people? Because friends, we can't read very much of the New Testament without coming to the conclusion that this matters to Jesus and it matters a lot, this whole idea of forgiveness. In Matthew 5, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? What he's saying there is if, if you want to come offer a gift at the altar to try to get right with me, first go get right with people. God wants us to be right with him, but what he's saying is if, if you're not right with me, if you're not right with people, you're not right with me. Move toward them if you know somebody has something against you. And in Mark 11, he says it from the other side. So when you're standing there, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. And again, the same thing in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you, if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. You see what the bottom line is here? Is that God pins us in a corner here. He says, if you know that somebody has something against you, go to them. If you know that you've got something against somebody else, go to them. You see what it is? It's always our move. There's no chance for us to say it's not our move. Because if we've wronged someone, we need to go. If someone's wronged us, we need to go. But you know what we like to do? You know what I like to do? I don't like to run to people. I want to sit on the porch. I want them to come to me. You know why I want them to come to me? Because they started it. It's their fault. I mean, I, I might have had this much fault, but it's mostly their fault. I mean, why would I run to them anyway? It's not going to do any good. I mean, I know how they are. It's not going to matter. And here's the favorite thing that I've said and heard so many people say is, oh, I forgive them. I just don't want to see them again. I don't want them on my porch. All those things might be true. 
They may have started it. It may be their fault. It may be more their fault than anything else. But at the end of the day, Jesus is telling us it's no excuse. We move toward people. God's kind of grace, God's kind of forgiveness always takes the initiative. But you know why that is so stinking hard? It's because to actually forgive someone is sacrificial. It's completely sacrificial. Because when someone wrongs us, there's a debt that is incurred. They owe us something because they've taken something from us. They maybe have taken something physically. Maybe they've taken our reputation. Maybe they've taken our peace in life. But they've taken something from me. And this is what the younger son understood. He understood that he had put himself in a debt position with the father. A financial debt. Because he put the family at jeopardy. Taking one third of the family's resources and squandering it. Financial jeopardy. And relational debt as well. He disgraced the family name with how he lived. He knows that he's a debtor before the father. And that's why he says, make me a hired hand. I'll pay it back, every penny. I'm not worthy to be called your son. He knows there's a relational debt. Let me pay it back. I don't even have to be a son. But then the father makes just the most scandalous move that you could ever imagine. What he says is, I'm not gonna make you pay. I'm not gonna let you pay. In fact, I'm gonna sacrificially absorb the hurt and the pain and the loss of your sin. And that's the decision that the father made. That's the decision that we always make when someone wrongs us. Are we gonna make them pay? Are we gonna choose to grab them by the throat and make them pay? Are we gonna choose, like this father did, to absorb the debt ourselves? Because when we talk about what forgiveness means in the Bible, that's exactly what it means. It means our willingness to absorb the debt against us. And you see the father's incredible willingness to do that by his response to the son. Like what was going on in his heart the whole time that his son was gone? Was it vengeance? No. You know what he was doing in his heart while his son was gone? He was kissing him. He was kissing him. You know why we know that? Because that's what happened as soon as he saw him. What was in his heart came out. And that's what the father would be asking us. Is that what is in our heart toward people that wrong us? Are we trying to, are we kissing people? Are we punishing people? That sounded kind of weird, that kissing part. But that's what we've got to ask. I think about how I know when I'm in a bad place as it relates to this. It's when I'm having those imaginary conversations. Do you ever, do you ever have those? Those imaginary conversations that you have with people? And you're always right in those. And you're always pointing your finger at just the right time. And you always have the right comeback. And they're just cowering and you're right and I'm wrong. Those conversations that we never actually have, but we want to have them. But when we see that in our heart, we know that we're in a bad place because what we want is vengeance. We want vengeance. We're not kissing people. You know what makes this tough to hear? Is this whole idea of absorbing someone else's debt is incredibly challenging. It's incredibly difficult. And the only way that we're ever going to be able to do that is if something transformative happens deep inside of us that our hearts are changed by the living God himself. I want us to look at 
One last time at Luke chapter 15, because I want to pick out one word that described the father's heart. Luke 15, 20 said, so he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and he was filled with what? He was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Compassion just means that there was something deep happening in the deepest places of the father's heart. He had compassion. And when we look at the life of Jesus, the New Testament account of his life, of all the emotional words that are used to describe Jesus' emotion, this is the word that's used most. most. This idea of compassion. It's compassion that compelled Jesus to move toward people, to move toward the marginalized, to even leave heaven, the porch of heaven, and to run to this earth, to be able to reconcile people. It was compassion that drove that. And there were debts that he incurred along the way. People tried to take away his dignity. People tried to take away his reputation. They took away his clothes for crying out loud, and he hung naked on a cross for us. And ultimately, they took his life as a ransom for us. And while all that was going on, being mocked and beaten, tortured, and ultimately crucified for us, what was it in Jesus' heart for those people? Luke 23, 34 tells us, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them. It's that heart of compassion that just says, I am willing to absorb the hurt and the pain and the wrong rather than inflict hurt and pain and wrong in the life of another person. And mind you, he could have. He could have called down myriads of angels and wiped out everyone that was there. But it was just this heart that said, I'm willing to absorb rather than inflict. And friends, the only way that we can do that is if God does something deep in us. And part of that deep work is that we've got to come to the place where we recognize and can see the magnitude of what we have been given in Christ. The magnitude of the forgiveness that has been given to us. That the fact that we are freely and completely forgiven in Christ needs to be so large in our mind that it makes the debts that we experience from others seem small. Because you know what happens when we realize that we stand before a holy God completely forgiven? It makes the ground around our feet look really level. It doesn't make us think that I'm better than anybody else. Because when we're holding a debt against someone, what we're saying to them is I'm better than you. And when we see ourselves before a holy God, we lose that. We lose that sense of I'm better than you. And when we realize that we have this, and this is like a billion dollars in the bank, we're able to forgive a debt of a grand, 10 grand, 100 grand, we can do that when we understand the magnitude of what Christ has done for us. It's lavish. It's huge what God has done for us. As we wrap up, I want to think about the title of this story. We often call it the story of the prodigal son. Have you ever thought about what the word prodigal means? I used to always think that it just meant the, the wayward son or the son that 